Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I'm your host. How is everybody doing out there? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Well, you guys know what time it is. You know that I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it's about current events, entertainment, or something that's just on my mind. So why don't we go ahead and get into my segment, Let's Talk About It. In the spirit of National Mental Wellness Month, today I would like to talk to you all a little bit about sleep. Now, it is no secret that sleep plays an important role in good physical and mental health. Sleep deprivation can leave you feeling irritable and exhausted in the short term, but it can also have serious long-term health consequences as well. Did you know that lack of sleep is linked to a number of unfavorable health conditions? Disturbances in sleep may exacerbate mental health conditions such as depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder, which was formerly referred to as manic depression. Insomnia can be a symptom of depression. And there has been research done that suggests that lack of sleep can also cause depression. Now, people with anxiety, they tend to experience more sleep disturbances, but experiencing sleep deprivation can contribute and it can increase their already feelings of anxiety. So when you're coping with feelings of anxiety, can you imagine how much more difficult it is when you're tired because you're suffering from chronic sleep disturbances? Now, poor sleep, like I said, can heighten the effects of anxiety. So it's gonna make the symptoms much worse. And sleep deprivation is a common symptom in PTSD. For those with bipolar disorder, they too can experience insomnia, but they also experience sleep-wake cycles and nightmares. Now, bipolar disorder is characterized as alternating periods of depression and elevated moods. So it's sort of like constant highs and lows, highs and lows. So imagine how not being able to sleep at night can make those even worse, right? Now, ADHD, it affects about 5% of our children. I believe somewhere between the ages of six to 17. Now, research suggests that sleep disturbances in this case, they're not only a predictor, but they're a contributor to the symptoms of the condition. Now, for those poor little babies out there, some of the sleep disturbances that they experience would be the ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. 
They may have difficulty waking up. Also, it is recorded that they have, um, uh, let's say, episodes of night walking, right? Where they walk around at night, but they're really asleep. And it would only stand to reason, right? That they would have daytime sleepiness. So those are some of the uh, symptoms that uh, have been reported with sleep deprivation with all of those different conditions. Now, getting more sleep does not necessarily mean that it's a cure, okay? But it is a definite step in the right direction. So, you know, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. Here are a few tips that may help you to get a better night's sleep. First, limit your napping during the day right? Some of you might be out there like naps. I don't get a chance to get a nap. (laughs) Well, for those of you who are napping, it is recommended that you keep your naps limited to like 30 minutes a day. You know what they call power naps? You'll be surprised once you get yourself conditioned, how um, alert you feel, how much better you feel. And your day is actually extended as a result. I once saw on one of uh, my news programs that I watch, it could have been like Sunday morning, for instance, like with Jane Pauley, where they spoke to a CEO of a company and he actually has his employees schedule nap times each and every day. Oh, I'm not kidding. There's like, you know, on the computer, where they schedule like meetings, the same system that they do that, they schedule naps. And they actually had a a designated room with a hammock and like a cozy little beep scene painted on the walls, (laughs) you know, to make it really nice and cozy for them. So he was absolutely serious about it. And he said that he found that it was important and that it increased the level of productivity among the employees. And then of course, I think they also felt valued, you know, like they matter in any time you're in a work environment where you feel in va- where you feel valued as an employee is always going to have positive results, right? Second, establish a nightly routine. You want to stick to habits that prepare you for a restful sleep at night. Read a few chapters from a good book, or maybe you have a playlist of easy listening music. One of the things that I used to love to do whenever I wasn't able to sleep, like I told you last week, I love herbal tea and chamomile tea has always worked for me. It makes me feel relaxed, it's soothing, and I am able to get drowsy and fall asleep eventually. So that's also a a good one as well. Avoid caffeine or other stimulants too close to bedtime. So no coffee or soda. They really like it if you stop drinking coffee or soda, perhaps maybe um, a couple of hours before you go to sleep to give your mind an opportunity to sort of like wind down and relax. Now this one might be a hard one for some of you guys out there, but I have to tell you anyway, Village, I have to tell you anyway. Turn off your devices. Yes. Turn off your TV and stop playing solitaire on your phone because I promise you can still pick up that game in the morning. Give yourself enough time so that your mind has a chance to relax before going to sleep. Okay? So turn it off, get your face out the screen, turn off the TV and allow yourself the opportunity to relax. Now these are tips 
with just recommendations on how you can improve your sleep at night, you may come up with your own, something that works for you. You know, um, I don't know. They have these apps now where they have like that background music, you know, water and like, you know, little birds, probably like the rainforest. You know what I'm talking about. I think it's called Calm. Yeah, that's it. So you can also, you know, check those out and see if they work for you. It is important to your mental health as well as your overall health to figure these things out. So please give it a try and sweet dreams. Now, can we talk about the 2021 inauguration? Oh my goodness. Ooh, Village, it was an entire breath of fresh air, honey. I mean, the sun was shining brightly and Washington never looked so good. It was as, it was as if the, the filth of insurrection and hate had been peeled away to reveal love and hope, two things that we have been missing for what felt like an eternity. The inauguration of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris was a rainbow after the storm, a cool glass of cold water after being in the desert, which had been devoid of decency and humanity. The calm and the reverence was simply majestic. I could feel myself where to you i could feel myself while watching the events of the day exhaling just <sighs> letting out all the stress and frustration that had been built up within me for the past like four or five years seeing the former presidents and first ladies barack and michelle obama who by the way that girl slayed that outfit didn't she she was stepping like she was on a runway somewhere go ahead michelle George W. and Laura Bush, Bill and Hillary Clinton. And with the talking that Bill was doing, you would have thought he was at a family reunion. Okay, he almost got left. <laughs> but their presence symbolized unity and a willingness to help usher in not only a new administration, but a sense of restoration and healing, which this country very much needs. How about Eugene Inita Hero Goodman, the Capitol Police officer who diverted the angry mob of protesters away from the Senate floor by himself? Child, he put his life on the line. He escorted, as a reward, the then president-elect Kamala Harris at the inauguration. For what he did by putting himself between those protesters and the Senate floor, whew, that he was able to leave them away from the Senate floor. I'm telling you, there is now legislation that has been introduced to award him the Congressional Gold Medal. I mean, think about it. A black man, one black man standing, you know, in the way of white supremacists, basically, who were there to do damage. And I'm sure you all heard 
and are hearing the reports as everything, you know, is revealed, just how, you know, serious their intent was. So that was a very heroic move. Thank you so much, Mr. Goodman, for saving many, many lives. Now, last, but certainly not by long shot least, 22-year-old Amanda Gorman, an American poet and activist who focuses her work on issues of oppression, feminism, race, and marginalization. Ooh, she was the first person to be named the National Youth Poet Laureate. One thing that she has in common with our president, Joe Biden, is that she too has a speech impediment. Did you know that? She has what's called an auditory processing disorder, which is a hearing condition in which your brain has a problem processing sounds. So the way that she describes it is that she is not always able to hear the sound of a letter. Therefore, she has a tendency to drop those letters when she speaks. Well, she goes through rigorous practices that she has in place to help her in this area. And you know what? She doesn't even see her speech impediment as an obstacle. Mm -mm. She feels that it is a gift. Now in 2017, she became the first youth poet to open the literary season for the Library of Congress. And she has read her poetry on none other than MTV. That's right. <laughs> you go girl. Now, according to sources, he was discovered by our first lady, Dr. Jill Biden, who recommended her for the inauguration, making her the youngest poet ever to read at a presidential inauguration. She recited her poem, The Hill We Climb. This was such a moving and poignant piece, and there were so many parts of it that can be focused on, but this is the part that I chose for today. And I quote, it's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while, but while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith, we trust. For while we have eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. She's a remarkable young lady, y'all. And I will definitely be keeping my eyes on her. And you know what? Here's a fun fact about her. She is a twin. And her twin's name is Gabrielle, who is also an activist. And lastly, we are remembering one of the greatest to ever do it, Kobe Bryant, NBA legend, right? I would just like to share with you all uh, the post that I created. It's actually on Instagram, on my page at purplediva72, and it reads as follows. <clears throat> I can still remember what I was doing on this day last year. 
I'm a huge football fan. And I was just chilling, watching the Pro Bowl. My breath was taken away when they interrupted the game to inform us that Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, who they called Gigi, and seven others had all perished in a plane crash. I can remember repeating out loud over and over again, what? 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 I didn't even realize the volume that my voice carried as my mother came from where she was to find out what had happened. From then on, my eyes were glued to the television, listening to everything that was reported about that fateful day. To this very moment, my heart breaks for every last one of them and their families that were left behind. Vanessa Bryant, Kobe's wife, demonstrated just how strong we can be even in our very darkest avowal. She was incredible as she eulogized her baby girl and the love of her life. Now, they may have made memes of Michael Jordan crying as he gave tribute to Kobe, but those tears, they represented the shock and pain that we all felt. I may not have been the biggest of basketball fans, but I knew who Kobe Bryant was, a man of excellence and humility, who was just as human as you and me. Rest in peace, Black Mamba. We remember Kobe, Gigi, Peyton and Sarah Chester, Ara Zobayan, John, Carrie, and Alyssa Altobelli, and Christina Mauser. Although you are all gone, you will not be forgotten. And now we will take our first walk to the musical jukebox, of course. Where else did y'all think we was going? Okay, you know we have to have music. Now, this song comes from his Can't Slow Down album, and it was released in 1984. It reached number one on three different Billboard music charts, the pop chart for two weeks, the R&B chart for three weeks, and the adult contemporary chart for six weeks. It even went across the pond, honey, to the UK on their singles chart, and it lasted for six weeks there. It's none other than the former Commodore himself, Lionel Richie, with, hello, is it me you're looking? Oh, you know what? <laughs> I should probably let him sing it. <laughs> and afterwards, I will get into today's album. My dreams I've kissed your lips a thousand times I sometimes see you pass outside my door 
Okay, beautiful people. So today's topic is about healthcare disparities in communities of color. So first, <clears throat> allow me to define what is meant when we're talking about healthcare disparity. So a healthcare disparity or a health disparity refers to a higher burden of illness, injury, disability, or 
mortality experienced by one group relative to another. So let's just get right on into it. Um, <clears throat> my focus on today's conversation, I just wanna give you guys a heads up, it's about black people specifically because they are the biggest target of healthcare disparity. So why are black people sicker and why do they die earlier than other racial groups? Many factors likely contribute to the increased morbidity and mortality among black people. And it's undeniable that one of those factors is the care that we receive from these providers. Black people simply are not receiving the same quality of care people. They're not getting the same care that white counterparts receive. And this second rate healthcare is shortening our lives. And that's it, our lives are not taken seriously. Our symptoms are being ignored. And after being discouraged and being sent home with no real answers, we have a tendency to suffer in silence as a result. Now, in 2005, the Institute of Medicine, a not-for-profit non-governmental organization now calling itself the National Academy of Medicine or NAM, name, I don't know, you figure that out, released a report documenting that the poverty in which black people disproportionately live cannot account, I repeat, cannot account for the fact that black people are sicker and have shorter lifespans than their white counterparts. Really? So it's not just that they live in low-income neighborhoods. Mm. Now, they also found racial and ethnic minorities that receive lower quality health care. And even when they have the insurance status, the income, age, and they have the severity of conditions which are comparable, they still receive a lower quality of health care. Whatever happened to that thing, um, uh, what's it called? Right, the Hippocratic Oath, right? Whatever happened to that? Now, the Hippocratic Oath was named after the father of medicine, Hippocrates, who was a Greek physician born in 460 BC. Now, obviously, after all this time, you know, the language of this document has changed over the years, but the intent of this oath has never wavered. Now, if nothing else, it is supposed to be a moral standard. And it reads as follows. The, more, the, the modern text of the Hippocratic Oath it's less binding in practical matters, you, you know, but it's supposed to be about empathy, about the moral purpose of the medical profession. It focuses on treating the sick human rather than the disease. The sick human, not the white human, the brown human, every other human but black. It says human, we're all human, okay? and not just a disease, and participating responsibly as part of the larger community of humanity. Humanity, which is mixed with all kinds of individuals from different walks of life and background. It is a solemn promise to provide care and healing, prevent disease where possible, and treat individuals with respect and compassion. Respect and compassion. 
it is used as a barometer rather than strict regulation, right? So they're just hoping that you'll be decent enough to at least care about whomever your patient may be, regardless of their age, their color, their gender, their creed, their sexual orientation. All of that should not matter. They're a human being. Okay, this is supposed to be a symbol of a general ethic as opposed to stringent rules. So if a doctor breaks any part of the oath, it is typically a matter of conscience than law. The exception to this is how the doctor breaks the oath. And if he is guilty of an actual crime, such as malpractice or neglect. So you have something in place that's supposed to govern you, it's supposed to be a guide in terms of how you treat these patients, and quite frankly, it's not being followed. Now, it's also reported that minority persons are less likely than white persons to be given appropriate cardiac care, to receive kidney dialysis or transplants, and to receive the best treatments for stroke, cancer, or AIDS. <laughs> they talk about this being an uncomfortable reality, but there are people in the United States who are more likely to die from cancer, heart disease, and diabetes simply because of their race or ethnicity, or ethnicity, excuse me, not just because they lack access to healthcare. And that is what they'll have you believe. Oh, you know, because they don't have the insurance or because the, they don't have the means, or maybe they don't have, you know, access to the best doctors. No, it's implicit racial bias against black people. That's exactly what it is. And the thing that gets me too is, you know, we're still talking about the vaccinations with regard to COVID-19. And I heard a statement made by another member of the community of color, because you know, it's black and brown, there's a whole African diaspora, right? And you recognize that even within the community, there's not really an understanding as to why black people specifically are hesitant to take the vaccine. Of course they wanna be well. Of course they would like to get better. Of course they want to stop dying disproportionately to other members of society. But this person said, oh, it was so easy. You know, it's, it's just a little prick of a needle. <laughs> Do you guys seriously think that with everything that black people have been through, and continue to go through. We're scared of the prick of a needle. Is that why you think that they're hesitant about taking the vaccine? Well, then you need to go back to the previous episode and listen to it because I gave very specific examples as to why they are hesitant and they are legitimate concerns. And I can tell you, honey, it has a lot more than to, to do with than just a prick of a needle, okay? Scores of studies, findings, document that providers are less likely to deliver effective treatments to people of color when compared to their white counterparts, even after controlling for characteristics like class, health behaviors, comorbidities, and access to health insurance and healthcare services. So for example, one study I read <clears throat> was done, um, and I think it included like 400 hospitals, right, in the United States. And it showed that Black patients 
with heart disease received older, cheaper, and more conservative treatments than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Now, Black patients were less likely to receive um, something like a, a coronary bypass operation or an angiography. After surgery, they were also discharged earlier from the hospital than white patients were. And when they were discharged, listen now, they were discharged when it was inappropriate to do so. What? So not only do we have to be, you know, concerned with like a vaccination, if you will, immunizations, if you will, but we simply have to always, excuse me, also deal with the way we are seen by the medical field. We're seen as subhuman. We're seen like our lives don't matter. It's as if our pain is not real. Like we don't even know our bodies. And you're made to feel like it's all in your mind. That's how little regard is given to Black people. And it's just not right. Black women are less likely than white women to receive radiation therapy in conjunction with a mastectomy. As a matter of fact, they are less likely to receive a mastectomy at all. Even more disturbing is that Black patients are more likely to receive less desirable treatments. The, the rate at which Black patients have their limbs amputated is higher than those of white patients. But can you imagine all the efforts that go on into saving white life? Because, you know, it's above all other life, right? It's more important, you know, it's superior. So we have to give it our all. You hardly give a doggone about somebody of color just because of the color of their skin. Do you understand people you know, what we're dealing with here, when we're talking about inequity, right now I'm just focusing on the healthcare in this segment, in, in this uh, episode, but that kind of inequity exists in every aspect of life for Black people and people of color, in every single aspect. There are roadblocks put up to keep us from having full access to the same thing that our white counterparts just have, also because of the color of their skin. And that's the problem that we have. Additionally, Black patients suffering from bipolar disorder are more likely to be treated with antipsychotics, despite evidence that these medications have long-term negative effects and that they're, they're not effective. See, this is the reason why as a person like myself, who has been diagnosed with major depression and anxiety disorder, right? There was a period of time in the beginning when I was in crisis where, okay, I was on medication and I had therapy, right? Love the therapy part, but when it was told to me, oh, you're, you're going to be on medication for the rest of your life? I was like, the hell I am? N no, I'm not. I don't want some pill 
whichever you decide to give me today that I don't even know if it's actually working to be what determines how I feel each day. I want to have authentic feelings, right? And so what I had to do, what I discovered worked best for me was to find alternative ways uh, to manage my illnesses. Things that worked for me and quite frankly, can you know become a part of uh, the lifestyle. So that's what I thought about. Now, if you guys hear that noise in the background, it's the snowblower because it's snowing here in New York. Yay, winter. Okay. So yeah, I had to make that decision because um, that's what worked best for me. That way I didn't have to worry about whether I had money to go and get my medication or whether I had a prescription or if I was able to get to the doctor. I felt that if I put certain measures in place that I found to be effective, uh, um, for myself, for my treatment, then that's what would help me ultimately down the road, since this is something that I will be dealing with for an extended period of time. Now, sometimes, obviously, with any of these mental health conditions, your uh, symptoms can be worse as you're going through an episode of it, but then they can kind of, you know, recede a little bit and not be as bad. So, you know, that's something to consider for yourself. What works best for you, right? So, Black people are simply, they're not receiving the, the quality of care that their white counterparts receive. And, and that's a fact. Like I mentioned, it has been assumed that Black people are not human and therefore they have a higher tolerance for pain. And oftentimes you are made to feel like you don't even know your own body. It's so crazy. I know myself personally times when this has happened in my life. Thankfully, I know what it is and I have experienced doctors who do care and who really do take care of you. But I have experienced those too that barely like make eye contact. You know, they're hardly listening when you're talking about your symptoms. And you can kind of get a sense that they really don't even care. They really don't. So again, because of that behavior, because of that bias, what tends to happen for Black people is instead of receiving preventive treatment, it's completely abandoned because there's no more faith in the medical field. And unfortunately, it's replaced with reactive care instead. And a lot of times that care, which is already inadequate, which is already ineffective, and quite frankly, which is already too late, determines our outcome, which in some instances is not good. Now, that brings us to our closing song for the evening. You know, um, music, I don't know what I would do without it. And there's such a plethora of choices out there. You guys will never know what I'll play each week. And I like that. I like having all those choices. And this next artist happens to be one of my uncle's favorites, my youngest uncle, one of his favorites, right? He loves people like Stevie Wonder 
and the musical genius himself, the purple one, the late great Prince, may rest in peace. But this artist right here, this British singer, has been credited with being one of the most successful, excuse me, successful British female artists in history. Why don't we give a listen to Sade as she sings Sweetest Taboo.
All right, people, we've come to that time in our show, The Inspirational Story. And this one is about university exams. So one night, four university students decided to stay out late. As they were partying and having a great time, they paid no interest in the test that they had the next day. Obviously, they didn't study. So in the morning, as they felt a little bit tired and full of regrets, as a team, they created a master plan. They covered themselves in the dirt and headed to the lecturer's office. <laughs> they proceeded to tell him that they had been to a wedding and on the way back, their tire had gone flat and they had to push their car back to campus. The lecturer willfully listened and agreed that they could retake the test in a few days. The students were delighted and believed that they got away with it. On the day of the test, all students were separated. They were then given the test, which shockingly had only one question. Which tire burst? <laughs> Which tire burst? Oh my God, I can imagine the sweat, right? Wow. What is the takeaway of the story, good people? Always be honest. Don't try to lie to get out of something that you could have been prepared for. <laughs> it's also worth stating that these students could have made a much more reasonable decision. <laughs> I thought that... was cute. I thought that was cute. Well, kings and queens, we have come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. It's always a good idea to do your own research, no matter what the topic is, especially when it involves you and your life. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next week. Please be sure to follow villagementality.ckm, C-K-M as in Mary, on Instagram and Facebook. And just remember, God has got me and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people, and here's to brighter days. Music.